The Healing the City podcast is a ministry of the Village Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you enjoy the Healing the City podcast and wish to support it financially, you can go to villagersonline.com, click the We Give tab, and follow the instructions. Thank you for listening and enjoy the podcast. Uh, welcome to Healing the City Podcast. My name is Eric Siepen. Uh, this particular episode and series is called The Book of Paul with Ron Brown. Hey, Ron Brown, how are you? Doing well. How's it going? I am doing good. Good, good, doing good. Good. How was your week? It was good. Uh, a good chunk of it was spending spent preparing for this. Oh, that's cool. Uh, I am simultaneously excited but nervous because I'm about to tell people about one of the coolest things I've ever come across. It was the first, I, I, I read this book um, by Daniel Quinn called Ishmael back in 2008. At the time, Which I, I think is about the time it came out, correct? No, it came out, I think, in like like several years earlier than that, maybe even okay. the, late, maybe the late 90s even. Because there's a sequel to it. Yes, there, there's two. Yes. And the trilogy is, fa- it's a loose trilogy. It's absolutely fantastic. I cannot recommend it enough. It's a fictional book. Yep. And it takes, the, it's the easiest book you'll ever read that is so dense in information. Like basically what it does is it's a radical, but extremely well argued reinterpretation of all of human history. Um, and in doing so, um, it, uh, analyzes some key sections of the old Testament, um, in ways that I found, I read this as an atheist and my mind was absolutely blown. This was the first time, uh, where I saw, how much wisdom can be taken from this book and how much relevant knowledge can be taken from it, even if you don't believe in God. And so I'm excited because this is the most incredible book I've ever read. Um, you know, maybe the Bible will supplant that soon enough. I hope it does. Um, um, yeah, I hope so. Yeah, me too. But I, but so far, like, like this book is just, you know, I've, I've never read a book more times. It's so easy to read. It's 230 pages and each page is remarkably undense. It's like reading 150 pages. Um, and it basically is a dialogue. It's like reading the transcript of this podcast. Um, but yeah, so what it does is it, it, it reinterprets all of human history and the big pivotal moment that it sees, um, being referred to allegorically in various parts of Genesis is the agricultural revolution, which so was, can we just set the stage of yep. like who Ishmael is? And mm-hmm. He's an ape and he yep. is telling the story. Absolutely. So, yeah, humanity. Maybe you could give. A, maybe you were already planning on doing that, but I thought no, we, no. I, yeah, well, so yeah, I wasn't going to mention that, but we basically, should probably set it up for people. Yeah. So the story it starts off with um, um, an ad in the newspaper saying, you know, basically, do you want to save the world? If so, like you know, serious inquiries only. And so a middle-aged man goes, and you know, in his thirties or forty or something, and he goes and he finds a huge gorilla waiting for him. And then he finds out that this gorilla can mentally talk to him. And this gorilla basically represents all of hum- all of nature outside of modern humanity. And he's communicating the wisdom from all of that to this modern human. Right. And so that's the, the basic premise of the book is that this ape is sort of an outside observer mm-hmm. offering insight 
into human history. Exactly. And remember that idea of an outside observer, because that's going to become very relevant later on. So I said I'm excited because, you know, this is exciting stuff for me. But the reason I'm nervous is because I just, I really want to do this justice. It's such an important set of things. It's somewhat complicated. And I want to be able to give it in a way where it's interesting, entertaining, contains everything that's relevant and minimizes, you know, anything else. And that's a hard balance to strike. And I'm going to do my best. Hope God's with me. Hope you guys are all with me. And I hope you'll stay with it because I promise you it'll be worth it. This is one of the most stunning stories you'll ever hear. I'm, I'm very confident in that. <laughs> and and the point here and, and the reason you're kind of going down this road, I'm assuming is because, uh, a, it had a huge impact on you mm-hmm. in 2008 and it is a good example of how one can take the Bible which, as Jordan Peterson would say, was like you know the the branch, the tree of all books, mm-hmm. uh, and and even though we may not believe in God, Jesus, that that construct, that system of belief, um, you can find some deep and truth in it, and find maybe even a relationship with God's people. Very correct? yes, exactly. All right, so it's, let's let's do this thing then. Awesome. All right, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off with by reading some passages from Genesis chapters one to four. So these are the first pages of the first book of the Bible. Um, there are key three key events I'm going to talk about. Firstly, the creation of mankind. Second, the fall, and third, the story of Cain and Abel. So the creation of mankind, in this act, God, it it, it is said in the Bible, created mankind in his own image so that mankind may rule over the world. He gives uh, God, God gives Adam and Eve the Garden of Eden and, you know, the earth as a whole and encourages them to subdue it and and fill it with mankind. Um, Within the Garden of Eden, there were two particularly important trees. Um, One was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the other was the tree of life or the tree of eternal life. Uh, And there were many other trees in the garden. And the one rule that was uh, specified by God was you can eat from any of these trees except the one that, you know, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So one rule. And that brings us to the fall. Um, Oh, yeah. So he said, don't don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because if you do, you will certainly die. That will become relevant. So the serpent tells Eve that she actually will not die if she eats from this tree. Rather, her eyes will be open and she will have the wisdom of God. And that's why God doesn't want her to have it, because he doesn't want you to be at his level, basically. Um, So Eve eats from the apple and then shares some with Adam. And you know, they immediately realize they're, they're naked and they, be, and they feel shameful and vulnerable. And then God notices and, and he's furious. And so he gives some pretty significant punishments. One is the punishment to Eve, pain in childbirth, which is something I referred to allegorically last podcast. Um, and then the punishment to Adam was being cursed in the, uh, you know, cursed the, the right, ground the, that he the farms. The ground will resist him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the ground that he pl- that he farms on will resist him. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he'll have to toil to eat for the rest of his days. Right. Also curses the snake. That's mm-hmm. cursed. Absolutely, yeah. You will slither on your belly. And the woman's heel will crush your head. Right. Ex- All right. Good to know. Yeah, that's a right. prophetic statement about Jesus. Although, as Ricky Gervais once said, cursing a snake to have to roll around on its belly, not really a punishment for a snake. <laughs> well, there, I kid, I kid. There is some Jewish <laughs> Jewish uh, poetry happening. Here. 
Anyhow, so uh, God then kicks them out of the Garden of Eden, saying that since they have eaten, this is this is big, since they have eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they cannot eat from the tree of eternal life. So that's pretty big. Moving forward to Cain and Abel. So after leaving the garden, Adam and Eve had two children, Cain and Abel. These were the first naturally born humans in history, as per the Bible, as Adam and Eve were, Eve were created. Um, this is, you will see, it's very significant. Abel was a nomadic herder. And so, you know, he, he, like, he didn't live in one place for too long. He moved around herding sheep and whatever else. And Cain was a settled farmer. So he stayed put, you know, and, and uh, farmed a specific set of plots of land, and, that, and that, that was his thing. So both of them offered sacrifices to the Lord, Abel from his flock and Cain from his crop. Um, and it turned out that God favored Abel's herder, nomadic herding sacrifice, but rejected the sacrifice of Cain the farmer. So Cain is very angry and resentful. And God asks him why he's angry and telling him that, you know, doesn't he know that if he does what is right, he will be accepted, which, you know, that certainly sounds like God is, might be saying that farming is wrong and nomadic herding is right. And that's why he favored Cain and disfavored Abel. Um, so, you know, that implication will become, become relevant very soon. Um, so of course, as people know, many people know, Cain proceeded to kill Abel um, resulting in God cursing Cain and the ground upon which he farms so that it will not grow crops, driving him off the land, telling Cain he will be a restless wanderer of the earth. So a very similar punishment as what was received by Adam. Yes. Okay, basically the same punishment. Um, yeah. Um, so anyhow, so now let's move into like Daniel Quinn. So, and the book Ishmael. And as Eric said, it is part of a, you know, it, it's not the only book in its uh, series. It's, there's a loose trilogy. Um, in my opinion, the second book, uh, The Story of B is the best. But anyhow, um, before I start talking about him, I'm just going to make a little caveat in by saying that I am not a radical environmentalist, nor do I hate modern society, and I wouldn't think either of those things describe Daniel, Daniel Quinn either. I want to say that because when I'm talking, it's going to sound like I'm a radical environmentalist who hates modern society. It's not true. Um, I'm just... Consider like the, the arguments I'm making, which are all his, um, Daniel Quinn's, uh, as being a description of events and a prediction of likely consequences rather than judgment on the events and the likely consequences. Um, so the book is basically, it's, a, it's about ecological history. Ecology being a study of how, hum of, of how living beings function in their environments. So function in the context of other living beings, of the natural world, the physical world, all that stuff. Um, Quinn argues that we have a grossly flawed understanding of human nature and our place in the world, uh, that, that our misunderstanding is threatening the sustainability of life itself, and that all of this stems from the agricultural revolution. So, the agricultural revolution, I would argue that this, from a secular perspective, aside from the evolution of humanity itself, is the single most important event in human history. And so isn't it interesting that it, it appears to be allegorically represented in the very first books of the Bible, the very first book and the very first chapters of the very first book of the Bible. 
Um, so with the agricultural revolution, let's talk about that a bit. Um, this was estimated to have taken place um, approximately 10,000 years ago in the Fertile Crescent in the Middle East, which just happens to be the exact time and location um, that the, the basically the beginning of the biblical stories are attributed to. Um, I think it was Usher, what was his name? The, um, the biblical scholar who estimated that the earth was six to 10,000 years old based on cr- counting up the chronologies in the Bible. This, and, yeah, it's been done by multiple people. Oh, okay, so fair enough. It doesn't really matter. So, yeah, so, quote so, yes, so yeah, so 10,000 years is a pretty commonly believed, yes, like, like, like if you ask a young earth creationist how old they think the earth is, they'll say 10, six 000. to 10, yeah. yeah. And and kind of recorded history is about Mm 10,000. I mean, we have bits and pieces back that far. Exactly, exactly right. Right. So anyhow, so we have an interesting coincidence that the agricultural revolution is located in the same place and time as the birth of basically the Old Testament and the Old Testament times. Um, So what the agricultural revolution represents, basically, it was the transition from humans living as nomadic herders like Abel, uh, herders, hunters, and gatherers, uh, to becoming settled farmers like Cain. Um, So basically, and per Quinn, Daniel Quinn, the agricultural revolution, it it, it is the point in history at which a certain subset of humans branched away from the rest of the community of life, not just the rest of humanity, but the rest of everything from amoeba to chickens to palm trees, everything else. Um, so the, in the community of life, uh, it, it basically refers to everything that's alive, as I just implied. And Daniel Quinn, he divides the community of life into two categories or types, the leavers and the takers. The leavers and the takers, yes. That's a, a you familiar? Uh, yeah, it's a main theme of the book. Exactly. Yep. Right. And so and these terms are not meant to be judgmental. Like, just take them as neutral. We, we, we could have just called them the A's and the B's. Um, but so the leavers comprise every living organism that has ever lived, except for most of humanity for the last 10,000 years or so. Um, the leavers live as if they belong to the world, sort of quote unquote, living in the hands of the gods, living in the hands of nature. They, 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 they do not view themselves as being above the rest of nature or the community of life. They don't try to control the whole world around them. They leave that to the gods and they also, you know, they take what they need and they leave the rest as opposed to building up surpluses that are withheld from others. The takers do it a little differently or a lot differently. Takers, uh, the taker group, live as if the world belongs to humans, as if it was made for us to subdue and administer in the service of our own growth. We take the power of the gods and nature and put it in our own hands by making ourselves safe from drought, famine, inclement weather, predators, and anything else that can threaten us. So the taker lifestyle is best reflected by what Daniel Quinn refers to as totalitarian agriculture. And this is one of those terms why this is why I wanted to say I'm not a radical environmentalist. It sounds like I hate all this stuff. I don't. But totalitarian agriculture and settlement refers to basically large-scale agriculture and animal husbandry, which is dedicated to commandeering the natural world to serve human population growth, health, and safety, uh, regardless of what it does to the rest of the world, um, making the forms of life that serve us maximized while minimizing those that do not serve us. Um, and I would just pose the question, since we're basically like now we're starting to talk about playing God, which species get to live? The ones that help us. Which species that die? The ones that 
work against us. And I would ask the question, what is more central to the question of knowledge of good and evil than knowing who gets to live and who gets to die? So just a little tie back there. So there are many benefits to the agricultural revolution and uh, to totalitarian agriculture and settlement. Um, you know, you get an increased and more dependable uh, food production and ability to store, store surpluses, which gives you your community greater resilience against famine and drought. Uh, it increases the survival rate of tribe members. Like, you know, more child, fewer children will, go, will die due to being underfed. Um, and which will result in an exponential increase in the total number of members of the tribe over the course of time. Another benefit is specialization. Um, in a time of hunting and gathering, you know, most of the people in the tribe would be dedicated to hunting and or gathering. But when you start having settlement and farms, you can start having professional farmers who only represent a small portion of the whole community which allows for others to specialize too. You could have others specialize in the production of weapons, of becoming professional soldiers, of becoming inventors of tools that they can use for all kinds of things, um, which has a lot of benefits. Uh, you know, it basically makes, it'll make this tribe more efficient, stronger, more robust than all the others because they have more food and more water and, more, and stronger, more weather-resistant homes and better weapons and more soldiers and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, which all of that would be a huge advantage when it comes to battling other tribes, which again is something that's going to become very relevant very soon. But there are also risks of totalitarian agriculture, most specifically the loss of cultural and biological diversity. So cultural diversity is lot was lost in a big way. In fact, Daniel Quinn in his second book referred to this as the great forgetting, so what happened was there were many, many, many tribes that lived in a, sort of a, a herding or hunting and gathering strategy. And over time, they got outcompeted by the farming tribes. And so not only did we lose these people, but we lost their way of life and their knowledge of their way of life. And since this all occurred well before the time of writing, we don't have it written down. Right? So we lost some cultural diversity there, like lifestyle diversity. Um, we also lost biological diversity because every time we kill off uh, a species that works against us, we've lost that species. Um, and of course, there's also unintended consequences. Like who knows if you make an adjustment to an ecosystem, what third order effects it might have that you didn't anticipate. So there's also that. Um, but here's the thing is that the diversity to a degree really can be a strength. Um, when it comes to survival of a, of a community, you want a certain level of diversity because if everyone is biologically and behaviorally the same and things change, you could wipe out the whole community because it might turn out that none of them can function in this newly changed world. But if you have a broad variety of lifestyles and species, the chances that at least a few of them will be able to survive in this new world is increased. Um, that too shall become very relevant. Okay, and so the next episode, I'm going to stop here for a bit. Uh, next episode, we're going to go into how was the story of the agricultural revolution told in Genesis. And, uh, but yeah, before we proceed onto that, any questions or concerns, Eric, uh, any thoughts on what I've said so far? No, it's interesting. It's an interesting review of the book. So okay. Far, right. Yeah. Okay. So nothing, yeah. nothing that I have any questions about at the moment. Okay. So yeah. So, so very good. Okay. So wait up for the next episode. Cause that's when it's going to get super interesting. 
You've been listening to The Book of Paul with Ron Brown and Eric Seepen. If you like The Book of Paul and the Healing the City podcast, then like us on Facebook and Instagram or email us at healingthecity at gmail.com.